Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, heed the warning, hide the women and children, bolt down the furniture. Here comes the captain. All right, all right, all right, all right. It's good to be seen. It's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Tonight we are drinking Peroni Original by Macro Brewery in beautiful Roma, Italy. Garage grade three and a half out of five bottle caps. Peroni Original is brewed to suit the Italian palate with low but present floral and fruity notes, complementing the bitter and sweetness, followed by a clean aftertaste. Remember, it's a crisp beer. And Peroni Original was brought to us by our favorite garage friends. First up, we have in sunny, beautiful, parts unknown USA, Mr. Trevor. <laughs> That's like a big letdown. Oh, we got the wonderful, amazing Trevor. Up next, this is from Grand Junction, Colorado. We have Melissa who says the captain can sail her boat anytime. All right, what does that mean even? Next up, we have Audrey from Montreal, Canada. Also, we have Adam sending drinks from afar from far, far away in Melbourne, Australia. Adam made sure to tell me that it's Melbourne, not Melbourne. So I must have said it wrong last time, but just just give me a break, people. I'm just a blue-collar dude from Ohio who spent way too many hours in the garage. Regardless, thank you, Adam. It's nice to get the education and a cheers from you. So cheers back to you, man. And Jenny from Henderson, Kentucky cannot get enough of the garage. Well, that makes one of us, Jenny. And last but not least, we have Deirdre down in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So thanks to everybody for the cold beers for this week. And if you want to buy us a round for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com. And while you're there, check out the store page. we got a bunch of different t-shirts that are available, but a limited number. So purchase quickly, my friends. And thanks to all of our Facebook friends. And for everything social media, we are at True Crime Garage. And everybody be patient. We do look at every email. We look at every direct message uh it just takes some time to get there's only two of us 
So it takes us some time to reply. So be patient, my friend. That is enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. This is True Crime Garage. And this is the Monster of Florence. Yesterday, Captain, we covered three double homicides, all attributed to the monster of Florence. The first one taking place in 1974, the next in 1981, and then they lock up a man named Enzo Spalletti. And then just a few months later, we have a crime that takes place again while he is locked up. Now, this leads us to another crime. Another murder, double homicide by the monster of Florence. This takes place just eight months later in June of 1982. Again, this is a Saturday night. And again, there is no moon. So this is June 19th, 1982, just about 25 kilometers from Florence. Now, the thing here, Captain, is this is one of the crimes where I find the most questions about. Okay. This, this is, there is a lot of confusion about this particular crime. First off, I want to throw this out there. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the, the female victim, uh, her name is Antonella. Now, this was reported on there that she was not mutilated in the way that the other female victims were in the previous crimes. Uh, this is possible, but I believe this to be wrong, and we will get into this in a bit. Okay. Um, Next, one thing, when the investigators try to piece together, when they try to reconstruct the crime scene and the crime as they think that it went down, well, they ran into a lot of trouble. And this is basically because of a car accident. And I'll take you through this here. So around 11.15 p.m. that night, um, there are several people in the area that they notice a vehicle. And the vehicle is down in a ditch. And it's down in a ditch in the way that the rear wheels are in the ditch and the front wheels in the headlights are pointing up, you know, towards the towards the uh, road or the sky. Right. Okay. so when these eyewitnesses happen upon the vehicle, they find inside that there is a male who is alive. He's like kind of he's struggling to stay alive and quickly becomes unconscious. Well, his name is Paulo. And he's quickly taken to the hospital and he will die just days later at the hospital. The female victim, there's some additional confusion as far as the findings of of these people, because we have witnesses, we have ambulance drivers, some of them stating that Apollo was in the front seat, in the driver's seat, like we've seen in many of these crimes before. Right. There's also... People that say he was, in fact, in the back seat of the vehicle. Now, the female victim, she was found in the back seat. And again, I think some of this stuff, you know, is just arguing points for no reason because what they did find, as far as evidence, was we got the gun shells, the, the gun casings, mm-hmm. and they're the same. They match the same as the previous three murders. Yeah. Same gun used in this crime. 
Uh, the thing here is, though, they do want to try to recreate this reconstruction of the crime scene. Uh, so maybe they can get some information about the perpetrator of this crime. Now, the strange thing here, though, Captain, the the killer, you know, because of the same gun being used, now believed to be the monster of Florence, uh, he he takes the car key with him. So the the ambulance and the first responders to this vehicle, they immediately have a lot of difficulty. And I wonder if some of that difficulty led to varying accounts of what they were seeing when they arrived on the scene, because they're trying to save these people. Mm-hmm. You know, Paulo is in the car and he's clinging to life. They got minutes to try to save this guy. And the problem here is because the vehicle has been wrecked, the, the driver's side door is is like smashed in, crunched in. It's jammed. You cannot get it open. Well, what happened was the killer must have uh, reached into the vehicle or possibly been in the vehicle himself to remove the the car. Or I'm sorry, the key from the ignition. Right. And when he did that, he locked the door, the passenger side door, either before or after closing it, but the the door was locked when they arrived. So now we have first responders there trying to get to these victims to see if they can save them, to see if there's any signs of life left, and yet they're losing valuable minutes because they're unable to open either door to the vehicle. Right, and one of the first questions that the investigators are going to ask themselves is did the, did the monster uh, attack these victims, and then did he move the vehicle? Yeah, and the thought being there, Captain, is that unlike the other crime scenes, this was not like a well-secluded area. This was this was a road that was frequented. As we said, there are two couples, two separate couples that find this vehicle and see it in the manner that it's found. So it's it's in a situation. It's in an area where it's likely to be stumbled upon or during the course of a murder, uh, you know, people could come upon this. So the question was, did the monster move the vehicle? Well, why would he move the vehicle? Did he attack them first? We know what his ritual is. We know that he always does this to the woman, to the female victim before leaving the crime scene. Did he need to move the vehicle, thus moving the victims away to a more private area and try to do this or, and, you know, in, in, in the, in losing control of the vehicle and right. ending up at the, in the ditch instead, or, did the couple try to flee him during the attack itself? And because they're either injured or afraid or terrified that they end up in the ditch and then the monster completes the job. Right. Yeah. He, he, he completes the killings, but he doesn't actually like, like we said before, it seems like this uh, individual is trying to create a perfect murder and then also create the aftermath of the murder scene. Mm hmm. And, and so in this case, I, I would lean towards the idea that they were going to try to get away, you know, meaning also, um, or basing my thoughts off of the fact that the driver was still alive. Yeah. And the strange thing here, Captain, like I said, you know, there's some question. Wikipedia says that Antonella was not mutilated like the previous female victims were. I disagree with that. Um, I, the only knowledge I can offer How there. How dare you? Yeah. Who would? You're not Wikipedia. Don't you go against Wikipedia. The thing here is, I want to throw this (laughs) out. gospel. Of course, I don't know for certain. I didn't investigate the case. I don't have any access to the case files. Well, then how do you know so much about it? So here's what I'm going off of. So I read two books in preparation for this case. Both were co-authored 
by by well-known authors. Both books stated that she was mutilated in the same fashion that the other women were. Uh, and according to the FBI's website, the FBI did a profile regarding the monster of Florence, and they talk a lot about that specific mutilation on there. The thing here is, according to their crimes, when they go through the crimes, they don't go through them specifically. You know, this happened sentence for sentence. Um, but what they do state is that they don't say that a, the mutilation did not occur here, where they do point to that at other occasions. So I'm assuming if they say that it, if they don't go out of their way to say it didn't occur, then they're under the belief that it did occur. All right. So what else happened with this investigation? Well, the thing here is the other thing we got to ask ourselves, Captain, is uh, regarding the mutilation itself. She was found in the back seat rather than outside of the vehicle like we've seen in other crimes. I don't know that this points to did the monster drive the vehicle or did they try to flee? I think I think any, you know, either either scenario seems very likely to me. The interesting thing though is that he took the time one for the mutilation to occur, two to to remove the key and then lock the car door. Before fleeing again, we see a guy, we see a perpetrator that even though in an area that's quite a bit busier than other locations that he's killed in before, he does not seem to be in a hurry. You know, it's like you had said in the last episode, he seems, he seems to be set out to accomplish whatever mission he has created for himself. And he's determined to leave a crime scene in the form that he chooses. Right. But you see this a lot with uh, Bundy, Gacy, um, Dahmer, where they kind of get careless with mm. with some of their actions, you know. So we're talking about the possibly, you know, possibly the fourth uh, attack, and maybe he's just getting careless, becoming uh, a bit frenzied in the in the act of killing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a, a strange thing here, Captain. Twelve days later, twelve days after the crime, an anonymous letter arrived at police headquarters in Florence. Inside the envelope, we have a yellowed newspaper clipping. This is from the same newspaper that has been reporting about the monster for years now. Uh, This is an article about a forgotten double homicide, double murder from 1968 of a man and a woman who had been having sex in a parked car. And remember the first, the first attack of the monster of Florence, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. Would have been 74. Yes. So this would have been six years before that. Yeah. And someone wrote on the newspaper clipping, take another look at this crime. Now, I believe, and I've heard rumor that there was other communication uh, to the police regarding this particular crime. I don't know the details of such. Um, But regardless, somebody sent this newspaper article with this old crime from 68. Well, what's your gut feeling? Do you think this is coming from the monster himself, or do you think this is coming from, you know, armchair detective? Mm, well, I'll tell you what. Can I let me go through this quick thing real fast, and then we'll dive into that because mm-hmm. th- this will give you a little insight into what we're looking at. So the investigators they go through their old evidence files regarding that case, and I guess that you know with some of these cases, if for some reason they they would remove evidence or dispose of evidence after some time so it's it's noted Genius. it's noted that for some reason they believe some kind of oversight 
that the shells, the bullet shells collected in 1968 had not been disposed of. Mm -hmm. And when they looked at these and they reviewed them, they discovered that they were, in fact, Winchester Series H rounds. And each one of them bore on the rim the unique signature of the Monster of Florence's gun. Okay, so there is another link in the chain, another murder. Now, this is going to sound strange, right? But I've heard several hardened investigators, and you have to be a hardened investigator and at your very end to start thinking this way. But when you have a lot of murders and they start piling up, and you know they're, you know they're connected, but you cannot locate your guy. You cannot figure out who is doing these murders. Mm-hmm. Some of these investigators, there creates an internal struggle within them, which it, it, just, it just happens. And they say that at some point, and this bothers them very much to say this, that they feel like they're, they're starting to wait to receive word of the next murder because the next murder, it, it could land you the clue that you needed. Within that case could be the little clue or little piece of evidence that you need so that you can catch this guy. So now these investigators, did they get lucky? You know, they have another murder here and maybe they got lucky because you get another crime scene, more clues, more leads, and no one else really has to die. Right. But we have a, right. Because the victims are already dead at that point. Right. But we have a problem with this case from 1968. We have somebody that's arrested for this. Yes. And, and they're in jail. Yes. So that, that creates a big problem. Well, let's go through this crime real fast. Okay. This took place August 21st, 1968 in a small town just west of Florence. Mm-hmm. At about 2 a.m. in the morning, there's an unexpected knock at the front door of a small home. The homeowners refuse to answer the door at such an hour without an explanation. Then they hear a small and meek voice say, please open the door and let me in. I am sleepy. They open the door and much to their surprise and shock, they see a little boy about six years of age standing alone and afraid. The boy nearly shaking says, I'm sleepy and my daddy is sick in bed. Can you drive me home because my mommy and uncle are dead in the car? Sure enough, they find his mother. She's found dead shot to death in a car, apparently while in the private romantic moment with some man, mm-hmm. not the woman's husband, not the, not the boy's father, or even an uncle like the boy had stated, but uh, a lover, uh, the wife and mother of that had taken on at some point. Yeah. But maybe the, maybe the mother said to the kid, Hey, this is your uncle. Yeah. Well, and captain this, you know, this, as you said, this is solved. Somebody's sitting in jail. This seems like an open and shut case. You have a married woman went to the movies with her lover, and afterwards they parked to have sex. They were ambushed <laughs> okay. in the middle of, of the act and shot mm-hmm. to death. The woman's husband, this is uh, Stefano Mele, he is from Sardinia. Uh, he's picked up the following morning. They did one of those uh, paraffin tests, uh, and the results indicated that Stefano had recently fired a gun. Okay. So he's looking very guilty at this point. He claimed he was innocent and he, he claimed that his wife had many lovers outside of their marriage and that one of those men uh, that she was having an affair with must have killed her. Um, apparently they had a pretty open and unique relationship. Okay. Um, so Stefano seemed to be all accounts, he was probably bisexual. It sounds like there was some threesomes going on where 
um, where his wife would be the only female participant. Mm-hmm. The, um, the devil's threesome. So we have Stefano and people around Stefano that are saying, you know, this isn't a jealous husband going out and killing his wife and, and the person she's having an affair with because this is a guy that didn't mind this type Sh- of right, activity. His wife. Yeah. So regardless, they pick him up. They, they have interrogated him. Eventually he does break down during the, the interrogation and he confesses to killing his wife and killing her lover in a fit of jealousy. Um, but the problem like the captain states is we have all these other crimes going on and melee is he's in, he's in prison at the time of the 1981 killings. Right. And after that, I don't know how this works. It seems like sometimes when we cover these cases in other countries that maybe our prison sentences might be a little lengthier, or maybe things have changed throughout the years, but he was, he killed his wife in, in lover or confessed to doing so. And he's, he's only in prison until 1981. Uh, He was technically out when the other crimes were committed by the monster, but he was living in a halfway house. Um, So, so, well, but investigators are saying that it, it would be extremely unlikely that he would have been able to commit any of those murders after 1968. So we have though, we have the, the matching gun. And like you said, we have a problem because old Stefano was accounted for during the later murders. Now, well, if he confessed to these crimes in 68, where's the gun, you know? investigators should be going, Hey, where's that gun that you used? Yeah. And uh, apparently I, I would like to know if this was questioned to him and if his answer stayed the same, you know, was this question to him at the time that, that his wife was killed? And if it was questioned to him again during the investigation regarding the monster, what mm-hmm. happened to the gun Stefano? Well, th- in you one can't of the, handle the gun. Well, he says, I want the gun. You can't handle the gun. He says, and I'm believing this is from the original Mm -hmm. investigation, that he says that he threw it, you know, in the woods or threw it in the bushes somewhere after fleeing the crime scene. Mm -hmm. Mm, Makes makes sense, I guess. Uh, Regardless, the gun was never found. However, the casings are matching. Um, Back to your question, do we think it was some kind of tip from an anonymous innocent person? Or do we think that this is some kind of, uh, the killer taunting the police in, in, in a way? Yeah. Um, what's your gut feeling? Well, here, here's my question. I, I actually don't think that it was the killer taunting the police. Mm-hmm. I think it was the killer maybe covering some tracks and, and I'm to get into this. I'm going to have to explain one thing. Remember when we said that the driver, the driver, when the vehicle was found in the ditch, the male driver, he is found alive and then taken to the hospital. He never regains consciousness that entire time. He dies at the hospital. But one thing that the prosecutor and the investigator did, this was, this was quite interesting. They claim that that, that, Apollo, that guy, that he gave them information, good information that would help them identify the monster of Florence. All right. Nobody would know this except for people extremely close to the case. Well, the ambulance driver at some point receives a strange phone call. Now, he receives a call from a man. Now, is he also peeping Tom? 
No, no, no. This is not not that I'm aware. Of. I know, but remember the last guy that was an ambulance it's, guy. It's it's a hobby of all hey, the ambulance drivers. So this is just what we do. It's part of the union. Oh, it's how you you know break up the stress of of the everyday right. ambulance right. driving. That's how we do it. Anyway, this caller contacted the driver of the ambulance that took the man to the hospital, and he says the the man says I didn't recognize the voice, but he says that the caller identified himself as an investigator and he wanted to find out what the ambulance driver may have overheard from the victim as he was driving him to the hospital. He also wanted to know what the ambulance driver might know in regards to the case and the investigation. Um, The ambulance driver says, I'm not going to tell this to you or anybody else over the phone. I don't know who you are. You know, if you present yourself in person, maybe we can have a legitimate conversation. The caller hangs up and shortly afterwards calls back and then he identifies himself as the monster of Florence. Okay. And during this call, he tells So he's trying to be sneaky before. Yeah. Yeah. And he calls back this time and it's, it's not a nice phone call. The second time he threatens the driver and explains to the driver that he's not to tell anybody about this phone call or, you know, the monster's going to come after him. Yeah. Right. Those are my favorite threats. You know, don't do this or else. So with the with the clipping, with the newspaper clipping, and let's there's a few things that are interesting here about kind of zodiac. It's very zodiac. And on top of that, you know, it it was addressed the envelope itself was addressed in a way like you would see like a like a ransom letter, right? Where somebody cuts out letters from newspaper and magazines. That was a that was a thing in the Late seventies and early eighties. Yeah. I wish they would do that more often. And so they piece together this and address the envelope as such. The whoever sent the envelope, mm-hmm. uh, they took the time to make sure that there were no fingerprints on this envelope. They also did not use their tongue to seal the envelope. Um, so somebody took a lot of precautions there. And the thing is, it's received just twelve days after this this murder. It almost seems to me like, and like I said, for some reason, the the police, maybe because it's a solved crime, they're supposed to dispose of the evidence after a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. I, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but, but what I'm wondering here, Captain, is, is it possible that the monster or the monsters would have had the ability to plant those bullets in that evidence, in that case file from 1968 and send this clipping to the police trying to cover their tracks, thinking, thinking that maybe the monster was identified by this, this man that remained alive, uh, in the hospital for a few days after the attack. Mm. So this murder took place in 68. The original murder was original. 1968, yes. Right, and there was no mutilation of the, the female. Correct. So one could say, well, then, you know, he didn't have a fixation or he didn't have a clear-cut picture of what he, he was trying to create, you know, the murder scene. Mm-hmm. Like we've said, I think this person was trying to create a certain image in his head, recreate that. So maybe he didn't have that thing in his head. Or did they place the shells in the evidence locker later. Like you said, it was a mistake that they had them. Mm-hmm. So, but maybe it wasn't a mistake. Maybe they did get rid of all the evidence and then all of a sudden they reappeared. Mm-hmm. 
that would be pretty hard, I think, to do to get into the, you'd have to get into the evidence locker and, and be able to infiltrate that. That would be hard. Right. It seems to me like it would take a, a certain person that would be at a certain level, you know, it working in a certain capacity uh, that would have the ability to do such or be involved with other persons that are able to to get access to that file or that evidence locker. Well, and what are your thoughts on this? Because this is kind of a crazy thought that kind of keeps popping up in my head. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, we've seen this with Bundy. Uh, I, I don't know. I know we've seen this with Bundy. I mean, Bundy was known to be a peeping Tom. Mm-hmm. So is it possible that we have this peeping Tom and in 1968, this peeping Tom witnesses a murder? Yeah. And then that person finds the gun that supposedly was in the bush. It may not have had much trouble finding the gun if he watched the murders go down and watched the, the killer. Uh, maybe it is Stefano that killed him. And he watches him toss the gun somewhere and he decides, oh, I'm going to go over there and retrieve that murder weapon. Right. That would be pretty crazy. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, a, a, a possibility. It, it, you're right, Captain. It, you know, when you say something like that, like you think about that and you're like, this is a possibility. Then you say it out loud and you're like, Sounds crazy. it's almost laughable. It's so crazy. It's almost laughable at the same time. It's, it's, it's crazy that you have a man in prison for a murder using the same weapon that, that there's somebody out committing murders using that same weapon for years and years afterwards. Right. Or, but a different type of killing though. And we yeah. don't have the We don't have the mutilation. We don't have the stabbing. Or the possibility that somebody sent them this newspaper article to cover their tracks and then found a way to plant evidence at an old solved crime from 1968. That, that yeah, but again, we have the confession. So just hear me out. I know it sounds crazy that a peeping Tom would be there and found the gun or somebody else found the gun. And then the gun was, you know, traded in and, and it was in the black market and this guy got the gun somehow, Mm -hmm. right? It's possible. But what I'm saying is the killings aren't the same. Uh, we have a guy that confessed to it, you know, so is it possible that this guy, uh, isn't it possible that this guy just got the gun somehow? And then if he got this gun somehow that maybe it wasn't the murderer, it was just maybe some armchair detective that's had this theory and yes, certain things lined up, but it doesn't completely line up. Ultimately, it just brings up more questions than answers, but we'll get right back to that after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have In a mobile game, everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. 
So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out betterhelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. 
I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Cheers. Cheers, mates. Cheers. Regarding the crime that took place in 1968, the double homicide, mm-hmm. Stefano Mele was convicted for killing his wife and her lover. Again, they never found the gun, right? Well, remember our guy, the reporter Mario Spezzi. Well, he figures out a way to interview Stefano. So mm-hmm. when this information came about, Stefano is out of prison at this point. You know, we said he's living in a halfway house from time to time. The thing here is everybody wanted to. <laughs> from time to time. Well, isn't that why it's called a halfway house? <laughs> All right. Half, um, half the time I'm there, half the time I'm somewhere else. Well, I guess at this time, everybody wanted to interview Stefano because the monster is one of the biggest news stories in the whole city. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, that whole country. Yeah, so everybody wants to speak with the Stefano guy and get his information about what he knows about the crime he was convicted of. Does he know anything about the monster that's out there running amok in the current day? Well, we have Spezzi. He has to figure out a way to interview this guy because nobody, uh, Melee will not let anybody near him. The halfway house will not let anybody come to interview this guy. They don't want anything to do with it. He figures out a way to to get to Stefano and he asks him specifically about the murders and about the gun. And the answers he gets from Stefano are as follows. Stefano says they need to figure out where that pistol is. Otherwise, there will be more murders. They will continue to kill. They will continue. So they. Yes. Mm -hmm. The key word is they. And so now armed with this information. Spezzi plus the police now believe that Stefano Mele was not alone the night in 1968 when his wife and lover were killed. Mm-hmm. It had not been a spontaneous crime of passion, but rather a what they call a clan killing. So Stefano and a group of people killed his wife and her lover under this theory. So his confession wasn't a false confession. Correct. It was not a false confession. But, now, he le- but he left out some details, though. Mm-hmm. And investigators theorized that one of the killers or somebody present that night had enjoyed the experience so much that he had gone on to become the monster of Florence using the same gun that had committed the crimes in 1968. A new, inve- a new investigation is underway in what now the police we're calling the Sardinian Connection. They they focused in and zeroed in on three Sardinian brothers. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, we said that Stefano was from Sardinia, and they probably looked at people close to him during this time. 
So these are three Sardinian brothers, Francesco, Salvatore, and Giovanni Vinci. They believed, it is believed, that all three of them had at one point been lovers or very close to the murdered woman from 1968. And one or more of them would have been present at the time of her killing. Mm -hmm. Due to their investigation, the police end up arresting Francesco. But on September 9th, this is 1983, we have Francesco Vinci still in jail. The monster was most certainly on the loose. A German couple had parked their Volkswagen camper for the night. Both were spied upon and then shot several times and killed. But the monster had apparently made a mistake that night because this situation was quite different than the other crimes because both of the victims were men. Yeah, and so after the monster would shoot these victims, he'd go into their trailer and he's going to be snooping around. Yeah, all the shots were fired from outside of the camper. If the monster were to follow his normal MO, he would go into the camper to, you know, pull the female victim from the vehicle. Mm-hmm. However, in this situation, um if he was following his typical MO, he would have went inside and discovered that this was not a heterosexual couple. This is a homosexual couple. And this is in fact, two men. Well, at some point he, the monster takes a pornographic magazine that he finds inside the camper. He tears pages out of it and scatters them on the ground outside of the camper. Okay. Um, it's not believed that he, he mutilated either of these victims in any way. He just simply shot them, discovered that he made a mistake. We're assuming and then left the crime. There has been a lot of speculation, though, Captain, if if this was intentional, you know, or did he just mistake uh, what he saw f- to be a female and male victim? Mm-hmm. Um, the situation is this, though. Remember, we have Francisco Vinci. He's he's locked up. He's believed to be involved in these crimes, the Monster of Florence crimes. Now, the authorities refused to release. Francesco, even though he was not around for this crime that took place on September 9th, 1983, they believed that one of his relatives had tried to throw them off by committing a new murder using the same gun, or at the very least that Francesco knew who the monster was. Right. So just to be clear for everybody to be clear that we have evidence at the scene that these two homosexual victims were shot with the same gun. Mm-hmm. They were shot with the monster's gun. And remember, we have all three Vinci brothers were being, they were considered suspects at the time that they arrested the one brother. So I think the thought here is that one of the other brothers or both of the other brothers went, went out and committed this crime. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the authorities believing that Francisco still could be the monster. It just means that there's more than one monster. Right. And Francesco probably knows who the other monster would be. Or the monsters would be. Right. Sorry, there's no clear way of putting that. Uh, investigators, well, I'm sure there is, but... Uh. But I did not achieve that. <laughs> um, investigators became suspicious of another member of what they are calling the Sardinian clan. Um, this is Antonio Vinci. Uh, and they ended up arresting him on firearms charges. Uh, they grilled the two men relentlessly but they were unable to break them. And finally, they were forced to release Antonio. But Francesco remained in custody. 
about four months later, the police baffled the public when they finally released Francesco. But they only did this after arresting two more men with connections to the Sardinian group. Right. And announcing now to the public for the first time that there are two monsters. The authorities believe that both of these men would have been present at the 1968. Remember, they're calling this the clan killing. Uh, they were arrested. They were charged with being the monster of Florence. Now, all winter. So they're charging them not with just the 68 crime, but all of them. Correct. They're looking at this as a whole. You're being arrested for this, but now we're going to try to put together some kind of case. Mm -hmm. So all winter long, the police work on these two men. They are desperately trying to extract confessions and develop their case, but they do, they do not have any success with this captain. Summer arrives. And even though the police have these two suspects in Mm -hmm. custody, the monster will strike again. This time, the victims would be 21-year-old Claudio and his girlfriend, Pia, only 18 years old at the time. They were both shot to death and stabbed in Claudio's car. Again, the monster left the empty shell casings matching the bullets from the other crimes. And again, the monster mutilated the woman, but adding a new horror. Mm -hmm. He cut off and took with him her left breast. A special strike force team was formed. They called themselves the Anti-Monster Squad. Now, see, Captain, that should be the new T-shirt. You have the True Crime Garage Anti-Monster Squad. I guess it'd be a picture of me and you with like this whole army of people behind us fighting monsters all over the world. Mm -hmm. This this is too... We have a problem here because um, in Italy, all right, you have two different types of police forces. And you could kind of think of this in a way of of like we have here in the United States. You have our, your regular police force, your local police, and then you have your FBI. Okay, so in Italy, you have the citizen police and you have the carbonari. Well, that's similar to um, you know, like a military police. Mm-hmm. Okay, so th- this is two separate police forces that investigate crime. And they they do this independently of one another. What this anti-monster squad is going to be comprised of is members of both organizations working together in their free time to try to put together a case against this monster and end the killing. Now, the government ends up offering a huge reward, which turns out roughly to be about $290,000 once you convert it to U.S. dollars for information leading to the capture of the monster. This is the highest bounty in in Italy history. Warning posters are put up everywhere. And on top of that, this this is wild. Uh, millions of warning postcards are distributed to tourists entering Florence. This is advising them not to go to the hills at night. Could you imagine going to another country to visit, especially a country as beautiful as Italy, mm-hmm. and when you arrive... You're handed a postcard telling you not to go into the hills at night because there is a monster on the loose that is gunning people down. Well, hold on. I need to cancel my airplane tickets because that's the only reason why I'm going there, (laughs) to go park in the hills. In the summer of 1985, the monster resurfaced again in what would be the most terrible killing of all. The victims were two young tourists who had pitched a tent in a field on the edge of a wooded area. According to the reconstruction of the crime, the killer approached the tent and with the tip of a knife 
made a 12 inch cut into the side of the tent. Mm -hmm. The campers hearing the noise unzipped the front flap to investigate what was going on outside of the tent. Apparently the killer was there waiting for them and opened fire on both of these people. He ends up hitting the female victim in the face. Now the man is only hit in the arm or the wrist. So he is able to flee the tent area. Well, the woman died instantly, but the man read, ran and fled toward the woods. The monster followed after him. He eventually catches the man and slits the man's throat, almost decapitating him. The young man's blood stained the tree branches well above his head, uh, maybe 10, 12 feet in the air. Right, the kill- still a little bit of a different scenario than mm-hmm. other killings. The killer returned to his female victim to perform the usual ritual mutilation. Mm-hmm. And like the last crime, he cut off her le- left breast. The bodies were not discovered until Monday at 2 p.m. Now, the police could not determine if the campers were killed on Saturday or on Sunday. And this is always obviously important to any investigation, of course, but this is also could could either play or not play into one of the biggest theories surrounding the monster. You know, we have the thought that we have victims that are attacked on Saturday nights on moonless Saturday nights. And we have these victims where we can't determine if they were killed Saturday night or Sunday night. So one of the big theories in this case has always been that there's there's an occult you know, there's some, these are some kinds of cult killings right? Uh, that these could be performed by devil worshipers or some kind of organization. Well, if they broke that and they ended up killing on Sunday, maybe that goes against that theory. Yeah, but I, I think there's some weight to this whole, you know, ritualistic killing um, because of the mutilation to the female, um, you know, kind of staging a scene every time. I think that that's not a bad angle for investigators to look into. Well, it, on the day of the discovery of the bodies, um, and this took place just before the bodies were discovered, um, the prosecutor in the case received an envelope through the mail. This is another communication that we see here, Captain. Envelope, yeah. The envelope had been addressed to using letters cut out from magazines and newspapers, Inside the envelope, we have uh, the prosecutor found the victim's left nipple. There were no fingerprints on the envelope itself. And again, the sender did not use his tongue to seal the envelope. The prosecutor soon quit the monster case. And not only that, she quit her career in law enforcement altogether as she was so terrified by this communication. Now, well, maybe she took that as a threat. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and with, with two suspects in jail, uh, then the two tourists are killed. We have, we have a judge here that remains convinced that one of the Sardinian clan members was the monster and that either one of them or both of the suspects being held were one of the monster or knew, again, who the monster was. So the judge is refusing to let these people out. Again, it's still possible that there's multiple people. But the the other thing I would add though too is that you have a crime taking place in 68 mm-hmm. and if the, if if the monster was multiple people, right? Mm-hmm. The next crime is not taking place till 74. Mm-hmm. So you'd think that once the arrest was made, once this person was going to be sentenced to this charge, that one of the other 
uh, people involved would be making a crime happen pretty quickly, have, have another murder happen pretty quickly. That way it gets the public going, hey, it's not the guy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of weird that there's a gap from 68 to 74 and then from 74 to 81. Right. Right. And, and you're right, though. You might have tapped into something because after we see one of the guys picked up, that Enzo Spalletti, there seems to be an increase in the frequency of the crimes of the monster. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the judge the judge that was focusing on the Vinci brothers, and remember we mentioned one of those brothers' names, this is Salvatore. Uh, the judge is now believing that Salvatore was present for the Stefano Melee uh, with Stefano Mele at the murder of his wife and lover back in 68. In mm-hmm. fact, Salvatore was suspected of having killed his own wife before leaving Sardinia. His wife had been found asphyxiated by gas in their home back in 1961. Mm-hmm. The death had officially been determined a suicide. But here's the strange part. Someone had taken the time to go into the home Someone had rescued the couple's one-year-old son, this is Antonio Vinci, from the house while leaving the boy's mother to die. The judge could not bring Salvatore to trial for being the monster of Florence, but yet he's convinced that Salvatore was the monster. So now there's not enough evidence to book him on this. Mm -hmm. However, he thought what they should do. Let's try to prosecute Salvatore for the old death of his wife back in 1961 instead, and then maybe Salvatore would confess to the crimes of the monster. Well, this ends up backfiring because the trial ends up being a disaster. By this time, you know, we're, we're almost 30 years removed from the death of his wife in 61. The trial's a disaster. The witnesses didn't seem to know much about the death of his wife or at least remember any details of anything that happened that day and the evidence in that case. Well, it was extremely weak to say it politely. Um, everything pretty much in pretty much hinged on the testimony of his son, Antonio Vinci, which is a, which was one years old at the time. He would have been one years old at the time at the death of his mother. Um, and Antonio refused to testify against his father. So nothing stuck. And the dr- the judge here struck out and was unable to prosecute Salvatore. But the story's not over, and this case has not completely gone cold because they have a new investigator. Yeah, a new lead investigator is applied to the case. Uh, he decides to go back to the drawing board because right now this thing is very muddled. And he decides that he's going to review what little forensic evidence has been collected throughout all of these crimes of the monster. Yeah, you'd think there would be some sort of DNA. Mm-hmm. Well, the things that they have in in evidence, Captain, is they have a knee print. A knee print was found on the, on the door of one of the vehicles. Mm-hmm. They found a bloody rag at one of the crime scenes, and they also found a partial fingerprint. Now, you also have to keep in mind, uh, you don't know if that partial fingerprint belongs to the killer or just somebody that happened to be in or around the vehicle. Correct. Now, this investigator will outrightly state that he learned very quickly that none of this, none of this evidence was analyzed properly, nor was it stored properly. So at some point, surprise, surprise, at some point you, you lose value and you're unable to get anything of value from this evidence. 
So he decides that he's going to go to the computers, right? He's, right. he's going computers. to, yeah, he's, he's going to go and study some computers, believing, uh, using a method that more new age investigators, uh, would might point him toward the man that they call the monster of thousands of men in the area. He was looking at several items, uh, regarding convictions for sex crimes, uh-huh. crimes of violence, uh, people with their prison sentences. When were they in prison when they were not? Uh, this led the investigator to a suspect, a Tuscan farmer named Pietro Pacciani. Now, he's described as a short, very strong man who was particularly drunk all of the time. Uh, and he had a violent history. Sounds like the captain. <laughs> Except for you're not short. Yeah, that's uh, right. But uh, he, so he I am when, a, I, when I'm drinking too much, I get really short. Well, one thing that's very different from you is that this guy has a extremely violent history, to say the least. You don't know me. Because in 1951, when he discovered, when Pacciani discovered that a traveling salesman mm-hmm. was having sex with his fiance. And I believe this took place in either her home or their home, but somehow he discovered this. He attacked the couple. He bashed in the man's skull, and then he raped the woman next to the man's dead body. Afterward, he was arrested. Uh, he was imprisoned. He was sentenced. It was an easy conviction uh, for this crime. Jesus, yeah. Uh, after he was released from prison, he married, uh, he was later convicted of sexually assaulting his daughters, uh, his prison Jesus sentence, Christ, man, every story, every week we cover a story and they all have girlfriends or wives. You mean, you mean these people that have horrible past these and do horrible, horrible, they, horrible individuals. It's, um, I haven't been on a date in months, man. The, 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 you, you're using the wrong dating website, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I love scumbags.com. You can find, I'll, I'll go to that one. There you go. But, uh, he, his prison sentences coincide with the gap in the killings. Okay. So this new investigator, I mean, he's like, wow, this dude, he's, he's, he's committed crimes against a couple. He has sex mm-hmm. crimes. He has violent crimes and his prison sentences coincide with the gaps in the killings. Mm-hmm. So when the monster was dormant, this dude was in prison. When the monster was active and killing people, Pacciani, this dude, right. was out and free. Okay, so did they investigate this guy's property? Or? Yes, they, they conducted a 12-day search of Pacciani's that's property. Long, that's a long search. It's a lot of days on the job. They found an unfired twenty-two caliber bullet in his garden. Now, experts say that it might. Let's put that in quotations. They found, found it in his garden. That's not suspicious. Well, they said that the experts said that they might, this bullet might have been inserted into the famous Beretta that they've been looking for and ejected without being fired. The ballistics report was inconclusive. Not long after, the Carbonari received a piece of a 22 Beretta wrapped in a torn rag. This was, it was accompanied with an anonymous note saying that it had been found in a place where Pacciani often went. All right, right. So, you know. Seems like a lot of fishy evidence. Well, what they did, Captain, was when they received this Beretta wrapped in the torn rag, then they went back to Pacciani's property and they searched the property again. They removed, you know, any rags, any towels that they could find on the property. 
and they found some rags in, that they found in his garage, and they compared it to the rag that sent the Beretta. Right. Well, it matched up. You so, know, we, so we think it was coming from his wife. Coming from his wife or from someone that, that knew him, you know, that was close to Pacciani. That had access to his property. Mm-hmm. He's eventually arrested in January of 1993, and he is charged with being the monster of Florence. All right, case closed. We'll see you guys next week. All yeah. right. Be good. Be kind. <laughs> don't don't be peeping on people, touching each other. Ooh. See you next week. <laughs> so what happened? Well, at the trial, now keep in mind, we're talking about, we, we described him as a short, very strong man, but this is a bully. You know, this is, this is a bully. This is a brute. And okay. at, the, at the trial, Pacciani rocked back and forth, and he cried very loudly during the proceedings. Uh, he would often yell out strange things during the trial as he cried, you know, things like I'm, I'm an innocent little lamb and mm. I'm, you know, they're, they're treating me like Jesus Christ on the cross. What? Uh, yeah. He just random craziness that he would, he would yell out, but the, almost the entire trial, this guy is rocking in his chair and crying very loudly. The prosecutors presented no murder weapon during this trial. They also presented no reliable eyewitnesses to the crimes and even Pacciani's wife and daughters. Okay, picture this. We know what he's done to these daughters. Okay, he, he, he these women hated or allegedly, him. right? Right. Well, no, he was convicted of, okay. of assault on his daughters. These women hated him. And I mean, probably hated him in every sense of the word. They said at trial that he could not have been the monster. Because this guy was always home. He was home and he was drunk all of the time. And he was at home yelling and hitting them. Um, right. You know, so it's strange to hear. So it, he was a monster, just not just monster. He was a Florence. monster within the four walls of his home. Correct. Right. These women had a good chance to get rid of this guy forever. And they didn't do that. Um, somehow, despite the lack of evidence um, outside of the bullet that was found that is still questionable that it was in the infamous Beretta that we've been talking about. Well, the, it's questionable how it got there on his property. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think sometimes when the case uh, goes on for so long and people, I think sometimes even with new investigators that get into a case and they're so desperate to solve it that they, you know, their ethics uh, kind of go away. You're right. And everything in their mind is pointing to this guy. I know he did it. Right. Well, this, this lines up, this lines up, this, yeah, but everything has to line up. Pacciani was in fact convicted and he was sentenced to life in prison. Now there is a mandatory appeal process and this was very strange. The prosecutor assigned to handle the appeal case actually decided to refuse to prosecute Pacciani. Mm. So on February 13th, 1996, because they're not going to prosecute him again, Pacciani was acquitted for being the monster of Florence. So we're back to square one. We're back to square Jesus. one. We, we see murder after murder, double homicide after double homicide, and then we keep locking up people. The murders don't stop no matter what. And, and when we do find somebody that we think we have some evidence. Right. The conviction is overturned. Yeah, or if we have them arrested, another murder takes place. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very interesting case. 
on the same day that Pacciani's acquitted, the police, they tried to save their case or maybe at least cover their backs because they brought forward new witnesses and they dramatically announced that they, they had a confession regarding the case of the monster. The judge, however, refused to allow the new witnesses to testify. But as we know, often with these stories, somehow this information gets out. So what was learned was that the first surprise witness had actually confessed to being Pacciani's accomplice. He said that he and Pacciani had been hired by a wealthy doctor to handle a few jobs. These were to collect female body parts for black masses to be used as offerings to the devil. But on top of these strange stories... That that doesn't make any sense because you don't have to kill, you know... Lover Lane people, you don't have to kill the the man and the and the female to get the female parts. Well, this man, you know, on top of these strange stories that the man is telling, he often contradicted himself uh, when telling these stories. He did implicate another man. Um, so now, according to this guy, we have a ring of three. Of uh, two of these men were convicted of murder. One was sentenced to life in prison. That being Pacciani. And the other two, uh, 26 years uh, in prison. Now, the higher court sent the case back to be retri- retried regarding Pacciani. However, he died in February of 1998 before the new trial could begin. This began an investigation into the search for the doctor and for the quote unquote masterminds behind these killings. Mm-hmm. But get this, the suspects or, you know, witnesses or whatever you want to call them at the acquittal for Pacciani said that they didn't know the doctor's name. Uh, he claimed, he, he told all these wild stories about collecting body parts for this doctor, but he claimed that only Pacciani knew the name of the doctor, knew the identity yeah, of the person story. that hired right. them. But this guy's story just seems so fishy. Yeah, and they presented this story to Pacciani, and he denied the entire story all the way until the day that he died. Right, and he was supposed to be retried, but since of it, because of his death, they can't retry him. Yeah, and over time, thread by thread, the web of evidence uh, against him, it fell apart. It wasn't great to begin with, but the rag and the gun pieces... Uh, that were sent to them that was found to have been manufactured and planted right. evidence. Um, it was never really established who they believe planted that evidence or who had sent that that to them. Um, but like you said, it, it appears to be somebody that would have known him had access to his property. Um, the expert who had been asked to clarify or to certify that the bullet found in Pacciani's garden might have been inserted into the monster's gun. He said at mm-hmm. a later date that he was bullied into arriving at that conclusion. Right. Um, that he was he was pressured by the investigators to to help them out with their investigation. Right. And who who do you think planted the other evidence? Those yeah. same investigators. Yeah, most likely. And then we also have Mario Spedzi, the uh, the journalist. He he videotaped a police officer who was present at the search of Pacciani's property. Uh-huh. And on this videotape, the officer is saying that it was his impression that the chief inspector in the crime or in the investigation 
had planted the bullet in the garden. Yeah, surprise, surprise. You know, it's a typical situation where an investigator gets a theory and they put their blinders on and they try to make everything fit, even, like I said, throw your ethics out the window. Mm -hmm. Well, around this same time, we have the FBI. Uh, They release a, a a thorough idea, a profile of the killer. And during this report... Uh, they say that the monster chose the places for his crime, that he did not choose the victims, mm-hmm. and that he would kill only in familiar locations. The murders had been committed over a large area encompassing the hills southeast and north of Florence. The police tried for years unsuccessfully to recognize a pattern, but Mario Spezzi mapped the life and movements of the Carbonari's suspect to the locations of the killings, and he found what he thought to be overlaps. Now, Mario Spezzi's view of this case is not complicated. The simplest and most obvious explanation was most likely the correct one. This is what he believed. He believed that the monster of Florence was a lone psychopath and that the key to finding him was the gun used in the 1968 Klan killing. Spetsy says every cop knows a gun used in a homicide, especially a clan killing, is never disposed of casually. It is his belief that it would be either destroyed or kept in a safe place. One of the killers, after the double homicide in 1968, had taken the gun home. Right. Again, though, you have to buy that that first killing was what they said it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand that we have a confession you know, from, from the husband, mm-hmm. but, uh, I don't know. I, I have a hard time buying it. Well, Spetsy agreed with the judge that was involved, believing that the monster must either be Salvatore Vinci or somebody close to Salvatore. Uh, someone with, which would make sense. Yeah. Someone with access to the gun and the box of bullets. It was that simple. And the crime scene evidence suggested that the monster was tall. Remember, we talked about Pacciani being a short man. There was evidence, and they gathered that from the angle in which the bullets were fired into the vehicles, Mm -hmm. as well as the knee print that was placed on the car door that they had found. So they believed the monster was tall. They believed him to be a right-handed man in excellent physical condition. This ruling out Pacciani, obviously, who was short, fat, old, and usually drunk. The killer was an expert shot, in their opinion, and skilled with a knife. Right, okay. So do you think it was a killer or killers? Well, I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to present what Mario Spezzi believes, and I'm going to present what the Carbonari believed at the time. Remember, he was comparing their number one suspect to information he had about the movements of this suspect and where the killings took place. Well, who was this person? Who was their number one suspect? Well, it was Antonio Vinci. Remember who he is? Mm -hmm. He's Salvatore's son. He's the one that if Salvatore killed his wife, he pulled the one-year-old son out of the the home that was being, uh, you know, gassed at the time. He's the one that refused to testify against his father he would have had access to the gun if the Vinci's had access to that gun. So Spetsy tracks down this guy and he, he wants to interview him regarding the monster of Florence, but he's a bit terrified because you, now you're very close to the possible inner circle of this whole thing. Right. So he actually introduces himself to Antonio as somebody else. 
However, Antonio is a smart dude, and he recognizes Spezzi. He does agree to be interviewed by Spezzi. Uh, when asked That's a if risky move. Spezzi wanted to record the interview, audio record the interview, he says no. You know, he, Antonio says, no, I, you can't record me. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I, I don't like my own voice. That's something you and I have to deal with a couple yeah. times a week. That's um, lovely. So I'm going to, I'll give you the shortened version of, of this interview. But during the course of this interview, one thing that Spetsy asked Antonio about was about all of the fights that he had had with his, with his own father. And he states that, you know, one of these fights, uh, you were charged with breaking into the home of your father in the spring of 1974, Mm -hmm. you were charged with breaking and entering in his home and theft. Well, Antonio corrects him and says, that's not correct. I was only charged with a violation because all they could prove was that I had broken into his home and that I, I didn't steal anything. Now he asked him, when did you leave Florence? Well, he left Florence in the beginning of 1975. Um, when did you return? Uh, he returned in 1982 mm-hmm. and then separated in 1985. Um, there's, and this goes on and on, but what we're establishing here is his movements. When was he in the area and when was he not? Both of those statements put him in the area during the times of the killings and out of the area when the killings were not taking place. The thought about the actual break into Salvatore's home the thought there is Spetsy believes that Salvatore had the gun, that he had possession of the Beretta, and that Antonio broke into his father's home and stole the gun before the first double homicide in 1974. All right. So just to break this down to be pretty clear. Mm-hmm. So basically his father kills his mother in 61, pulls him out of the house in 61. Then in 68, his father's involved in this clan type killing mm-hmm. they kill uh this this couple because they're cheating on them and then in 74 the son breaks into the father's house steals the murder weapon and then goes on a killing rampage now he would have been about age 14 at this time yeah yeah he would have been 14 or 15 at the time i i don't know what month he was born in um it seems awfully young the strange thing here, though, and this is where I believe that Spetsy arrived at this conclusion, was because when when the father, when Salvatore had noticed that his home was broken into, he called and reported it as a as his home was broken into and right. things were stolen. When the police arrived to take their report, they asked him what was stolen. He says there was nothing stolen. The house was just broken into. They find out that it was the son that actually broke into the house. The thought is, you know, Spetsy's thought is that Salvatore would not admit that the only item stolen was a murder weapon that he was present for or participated in back in 1968. So what else came from this interview? Well, Spetsy directly asked him about the 22 Beretta. He said, if your father owned the 22 Beretta, Mm -hmm. you were the person in the best position to take it, correct? And... Well, Antonio says he, he kind of stalls on his answer, but his answer is this. He says, you know, I didn't take it and I have proof. And he says, you know, what was the proof? And he says, if I had taken that gun from my father, I would have fired that gun into my father's forehead. That's your proof. Well, that's a pretty uh, strong statement there. Yeah. And Spetsy, Spetsy pushes him further. 
and saying that, you know, because you didn't have the gun that I'm asking you about, mm-hmm. then that means you are not the monster of Florence. Well, Antonio says, no, I'm not the monster because I like my pussy whole. Wowzer. That's a, that's another strong statement. Well, it's after this statement that Spetsy decides to leave the house, to mm-hmm. leave this guy's house immediately. Um, as he's walking out of the home, uh, he is uh, embraced, let's say, by his host, by Antonio. Um, and during this, he he basically whispers to him in a, in a deep, gravelly tone. He says, listen carefully, Spetsy. I, I never joke around. Um, I don't know what that means, but I take that to be some kind of threat here. The situation is, Captain, does, you know, Spetsy's thoughts... Uh, he's looked at this crime probably longer than anybody else being the investigative journalist that he is. Mm -hmm. He's worked this case longer than most of the investigators involved. I think he has a reasonable explanation for the crimes and for who the monster of Florence is. You know, it's a little, no matter who you look at in this case, it's a little bit of a leap though. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I definitely think there's a leap. Um, I think the tough thing about, this leap that he's making is that, like we said, that then the suspect would have to be 14 years old. Yeah. Yeah. That's the biggest hurdle for me. Certainly does have ties to the crime, ties to the original murder back in 1968. Regardless, this is a fascinating yet frustrating crime all at the same time. You know, we, we talked about this. Anytime we have an arrest, there's, a, there's another murder. Um, nothing, nothing holds weight here. Over the course of this investigation, after all these years, you have four men that were arrested, charged of and convicted of being the monster at different times. You also have many people that were arrested and eventually released and not charged with the crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the convictions that I just spoke of have been criticized and ridiculed by the media. And it is of almost everyone's belief that the killer or killers have never been identified. Well, I guess uh, until then, until new information comes out, we'll just never know. Well, and that leads us to our recommended reading for this week, Captain. We are recommending The Monster of Florence by Douglas Preston and Mario Spezzi. Uh, The thing here is, I know, I feel we did a great job covering this. This is a huge case, though. This was one of those situations we got into this and we were starting thinking, is this, is this three episodes? Is this you, four episodes? Glad you pat yourself on the back. We We're, did a great job. Oh, we did. I'm here to tell you. Uh, <laughs> but what I will tell you, Captain, is that there is more reason to look into this case on your own. There were certain avenues that we were unable to take, uh, unable to explore, because them and themselves were monster cases of their own. So if you want to find out more about the quote-unquote doctor that had this satanic organization that he was he was looking for body parts for these rituals that's covered in this book the monster of florence by douglas preston and mario spezzi and you can pick that up by going to truecrimegarage.com click on the recommended page and you'll see all of our books there and just make sure that you use our amazon banner when you make your purchase maybe we'll come back to that and just do a, a special episode just on that doctor yeah if you want to hear more about the doctor if you if you really want to impress upon us that you want to hear more about the Monster of Florence, you can do that at our blog at truecrimegarage.com. Captain, I want to thank you for another great week. I want to thank all of our great sponsors, all the wonderful listeners out there. And thanks for sharing on social media. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for the five-star reviews. They mean a lot.
And we will see you back here next week in the garage. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.